You are listening to episode 177 of Shades Midweek. This is a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. We are recording this at Three Stream Studio here in Homewood, Alabama, and I'm joined as usual by my friends Jonathan Haves and Brad Brown. And I am John Mark DeRoe, and thank you for listening today. Guys, we have officially hit the month of Spooktober. Spooktober. Spooktober? Why do you say that? October. October. Have you guys decorated for Halloween yet? Man, I, I don't, and it's not out of like this hardcore like conviction of I refuse to. It's out of economics. <laughs> it's like I refuse to spend money on something else. My kids, my kids make fun of the way I attempt to decorate for Christmas as far as the yard goes. Like the inside of our house, Holly does an amazing job, great Christmas decorations. But yard decorations, like Holly just is like, I don't have time for that. Jonathan, if you're going to do that, that's your thing. And so basically each year I will buy one more yard thing. Um, and so they're always random and eclectic, and my kids are old enough now that they're embarrassed by it and just yeah. feel like it looks really sad. So I can barely, barely try to decorate for Christmas. I, I ain't got time to try and, and decorate for Halloween. Though, man, I got a couple of houses in my neighborhood that go crazy. Yeah, well, we don't we don't go all out, but I believe we put up our stuff on September 16th. I have one question. Do you have a 15-foot <laughs> skeleton in your front yard? Uh, we... It would look terrible in front of our house. It would it would be taller than our roof line because of the way that our yard slopes. So uh, that might be we don't. Cool. But there are several houses on Bl- in Bluff Park on the kind of the main strip Park Avenue. There's like a lot of bigger homes on yeah. that street, and yeah, they there's like huge skeletons. And then they end up keeping them up I know. through Christmas. They just throw some Christmas lights on them, dude. I'm like this. There's no such thing as a Christmas skeleton. This those is things. Night those be- night before Christmas. Okay, all right, wait. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to but that, that though. Is a, I'm going to come back to that. Yeah. Those things, those skeletons, that, that was last year the first year they showed up? Like Home Depot was selling them or something. Man, I feel like it was last year that I noticed them All for the, the inflatables. Time. How much are they? All the yard inflatables are getting know. more and more popular when you go to Home Depot at home. Any of those places. I mean, they're just getting bigger and bigger now. Well, well those giant skeletons. Like 20 feet tall. I, I remember them showing up last year for the first time. And this year in my neighborhood, they're just they're out of control. I saw the first one set up on September the first, John Mark. <laughs> September we've got this one house it's that a they, season. We've got this one house that they go nuts for, for Halloween. I don't know how many things they set up in their yard, but basically they set up one a day. They start in early September and they just set up a new thing each day. And it's just it's just crazy. It's just crazy town. So you can get a twelve foot giant skeleton from Home Depot for three hundred dollars. That's a lot of money. I'm there's, sure you can find one cheaper. I'm doing a lot with three hundred bucks. There's over a thousand reviews. People are very satisfied with the giant actually skeleton. with inflation. I can't do much with three hundred. I'm just kidding. Back to Nightmare Before Christmas. Here's my question, guys. Nightmare Before Christmas. If you've got yard decorations that are Nightmare Before Christmas decorations, are those Halloween decorations? Or are they Christmas decorations? Because I have a strong opinion. I'm going to say yes I've Brad, never, to all of the things. Brad? I've never thought about it before. I am hardcore. That's a Christmas decoration. And we have a house down the street from us that doesn't have a 15-foot skeleton. They have a 15-foot jack 
uh, what's his name? Jack Skellington? Skeleton? Is yeah, it Skeleton some, or Skellington? Something like that. Whatever. I don't remember. But anyway, it's super creepy, dude. Super creepy. But they have that and then his little dog, Zero. You're the head of the team, Zero. Anyway. Well, I, I'm just excited. And Zero's already dressed up as Rudolph. And John, I'm just like, what Jonathan, is this? The fact that you have a strong opinion about that makes me uncomfortable. I don't have <laughs> a strong opinion about many things, but I do about this. <laughs> I want to hear your opinion. Email us midweek at shadesvalley.org. That's right. Our nightmare before Christmas decorations, Christmas decorations, or Halloween decorations. I think I think the reason I have a strong opinion about this is because nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. It's all right. It scarred me as a child. It scarred uh, me as a child. I wasn't allowed to watch it. I wasn't either. I didn't see it until I was probably in high school. But what I did see is, do y'all remember, y'all are old enough, right, that y'all watched things on VHS? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you remember when you would play a VHS, uh, the beginning of the VHS had trailers for upcoming movies. And I don't remember what it was, but there was a VHS we had, and it had a trailer for The Nightmare Before Christmas. And the very last shot of that trailer was this mom and dad on Christmas morning with their like son going, what did Santa bring you for Christmas? And he pulls a head out of the box and it just haunted me as a child. I was scarred. Merry Christmas. I was so scarred. You can get the, uh, so I'm passionate. the animated 13 foot animated Jack Skellington for, uh, let's see, $400. There it tax. is. That's cool. Well, you know, our if na- you want to Jonathan, our neighborhood really go- goes all out for these seasons. And so, we decorated pretty early, like maybe two weeks ago, and th- so now all of our neighbors have decorated for Halloween, and yes, everyone that's within our group on the street, they put up inflatables, they put up spider webs, all the things, so we're kind of deep in Halloween mode right now, and it's just an exciting time to be alive. You know, John Marker, we'll ask you this. You mentioned, and I saw this, but I've not explored it yet, so I'd love, since we didn't talk about this beforehand, for you to explain this. Uh, CT is putting out a new podcast. Oh, Christianity Today. Christianity Today. Yep. And it's titled... John Mark's been texting us relentlessly I about know. this. That's, he was One excited or two about times. it. At least twice. <laughs> At every, least twice. Every day. <laughs> he's been texting us about it. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about it, John Mark. Yeah, so uh, who posted about this? I can't remember how I found out about it. I think actually I think Mike Cosper. Russell Moore. I think Russell Moore. Oh, yeah. Because he's, uh, he's with Christianity yeah. today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He reposted it. I'm sure Mike Cosper did as well. And I, all I see is this trailer for this podcast ba- called Be Afraid. And it's a Christianity to today podcast how long is the trailer trailer's like two minutes should we play it i mean if you don't like uh do we have anything else to do today let's play it <laughs> we do have other things but let's play the trailer brad and i have not heard it so here's oh live, you haven't even heard the trailer here's yet. live reaction thanks a lot guys from brad and i Jeez. <laughs> here we go in 1973 a little film called the exorcist was unleashed upon the world Made for a mere $12 million, it went on to gross nearly half a billion dollars in ticket sales. It wasn't just the first horror film ever to be nominated for an Academy Award. It quickly became known as one of the scariest movies of all time. What an excellent day. I'm out! (laughs) Some would say it still is. William Friedkin, the director, died earlier this year. 
which also happens to be the film's 50th anniversary. Oh my so it's gosh. fitting that yet another Exorcist sequel will be released this great, coming October. Great director. You're gonna spill your water, Jonathan. But the film's ongoing relevance is just one example among many others of the unprecedented popularity of the horror genre. In case you missed it, people are watching horror of one kind or another now more than ever. But not me. <laughs> I was 43 years old the first time I saw The Exorcist. I was Jonathan Hayes. That was just last year, and truth be told, <laughs> Hold on. I didn't really have a choice in the matter. After all, as a professional researcher, my areas of expertise are the theological and psychological effects of contemporary film and media. I also happen to be a person of Christian faith and a father of adolescent kids, which means I can no longer avoid asking the deeper questions about why so many are drawn toward films like The Exorcist, even if and when they terrify us. So fair warning, this podcast isn't about how to avoid fear, how to leverage it, or even whether or not it's okay to be afraid. This podcast is about how to fear rightly. Exploring fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. Be Afraid. Coming this fall, from the studio that brought you the rise and fall of Mars Hill and The Bulletin. Subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Nope. I just unsubscribe from everything that Christianity Today does. I'm out. I'm out. I can't do it. Wow. Oh. You were saying, Jonathan? I uh, I don't know if I can talk about it, guys. I may need I may need a counseling session after having to listen to that. Oh my goodness. Well, dude, <laughs> listen, I, I am serious, man. I can't I, I just so so the new uh Exorcist movie that's coming out, the sequel. Yeah. Um so that trailer will randomly come on before it's, YouTube videos. Well, dude, it's it's all over football games. I, I, oh, yeah. I, mm -mm, nope, I'm out. It, I can't. I'm, like, changing the channel. I try, I try um, to watch football. I'm hitting the skip button. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I can't do it. Yeah, I I've, I've been to uh, I've been to two and, movies now, and recently, and that was a trailer. Now, and the here's movie. the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. There, There is, okay. Wasn't it a trailer before Oppenheimer? Yep. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. there is some of this that interests me. Um, so, like, from the psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. That's what most of right, it right, is. Right, 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 right. It does interest me, like, even about myself, why this kind of thing bothers me so much. And here's the reason I will say this. I don't know if I've ever shared this story on the podcast before, and we could do this maybe sometime. But I, I have a story um, where I, I don't have any other explanation for what happened than I do feel like it was an encounter with the demonic. Mm -hmm. um, and... It was it was in the context of praying over somebody and and all of that. That freaks me out less, like, and that's a real thing, you know. Than watching the like a movie. Yeah, like so I am interested in like what's going oh, yeah. on in me psychologically. That like in a real situation, like I am calmer, I am more at peace, I'm all of that kind of stuff. But like you put me in like this kind of movie situation, I'm like, nope. Well, it's really I'm, interesting. I'm interested in that. My, my friend Caleb, maybe this is Patrick's experience too, because Patrick's a big horror film guy, yeah, right? Yeah, much bigger than I am. Yeah, so sure. my friend Caleb can watch two, three horror <laughs> films back to back. He, This is a pastor, by the way. Watch two, three horror films back to back of any genre at, you know, 2 a.m., go into the next room and go to bed. Yeah, I don't. While he's in a house 
by himself. I don't know what's wrong with my psyche, and I don't know what's wrong with his psyche, but I will take what's wrong with mine every day over that. That's what we need to do is have oh. Caleb and Jonathan on the podcast, have them watch a horror film and put, like, you know, uh, a bunch of different monitors on them to see what's happening. <laughs> so what's happening in our heads. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to sit still. An MRI bodily reactions. As they're watching the film. Yeah, so I guess the, the podcast generally, they, they did like a uh, an episode this past Friday that's like an introduction mm-hmm. to this first season that they're doing. So right. uh, it's like 30 minutes long, and it kind of lays out what they're going to be doing, the people that they're going to be interviewing. So they're interviewing some filmmakers. They're inter- interviewing some doctors and things like that. And uh, But the, the first episode was really, really cool because they do kind of go into some of the psychology behind why people watch horror movies. Right. And they talk about how since the pandemic and all of the events that happened in 2020 and you know uh, George Floyd, all the school shootings that we've seen, uh, the capital uh, early the capital rise, just all of the horrific things that we've experienced as a society, and how people are draw- being drawn more and more as anxiety and depression and things skyrocket. People are being drawn more and more to horror movies because it's almost a way of them uh, able to experience something. It almost like draws something out for them in like a positive way. Hmm. It's like to be able to face their fears in certain things, certain anxieties, certain, you know, whatever the case. And then they talk about the bonding experience of people going to see these types of movies together and how that's a positive thing. And they interview, they play an excerpt from uh, an interview with the director of the Scream movies. So Wes Craven, he's a very famous horror movie director. He's been directing horror movies for forever. And he talks about, the first, I guess it was the first Scream movie that he did in the mid-90s. And just people coming out of the theater and they were all smiling. And it's this idea of like almost this release that people have mm. when, they, when they face these, these, uh, these things that may, they may be truly afraid of or these situations that may cause fear. But it almost incites like this, uh, because of the release, it incites like this joy. And people are like coming out of the theater excited and happy. Well, it's, it's, the, it's they the Batman effect. That. Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's the, it's the Batman. Bruce is afraid of bats, and he's got to embrace his fear, right. right? I haven't thought this through at all, so don't listen yeah. to what well, I'm about I, to say. I, I really haven't. I mean, that either, was really but interesting. But I think I'm just it's thinking, established. You should go that, listen to the episode. I did a terrible job. Go listen to you the know, episode. I think it's established that Shades Midweek is stream of consciousness. <laughs> well, I'm just you know we think about adrenaline junkies, right? Yeah, and some of the things that people will do that the rest of us would be like, I would never do that. You I know? rode so a motorcycle to work this morning. We're talking about... Right. Yeah. I mean, and I would a- never ride a motorcycle. I'm afraid of motorcycles. So yeah. there you go, John. You need to be afraid if you're going <laughs> to ride one. But just to think about the physiological response, what happens in a horror film, like, I mean, you're having a biological response. Your yeah. heart's racing. Right, adrenaline rush. Adrenaline's yeah. pumping. There are other chemicals that are released in the brain. And so thinking about how different people experience those type of bodily responses that we have would be a really interesting conversation. <sighs> well, I, I could describe to you everything that I just felt. I'm still high on an adrenaline rush over here just from listening to that thing. There we go. Yeah. Anyway, so. all right, well, that's probably enough about Spooktober. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John Mark. 
Glad normally, you down. Normally, see, I ignore all of that about October normally and just focus on the fact that it's my birthday month. That's what I like to think about oh. for October. But we can talk about that next week or something. Wow. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. We should probably put a warning at Are the very gonna- beginning of this episode that we talk about horror films and stuff, and if people want to skip ahead, they can. That's right. So let's skip ahead to uh, to music. Oh, please so tell me. Please about. tell yeah. me it's not the soundtrack <laughs> like a horror film. <laughs> yes, it's John Carpenter's Halloween. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, this week's album comes from. A multitude of artists that are participating in this collaboration. The main one being S. Carey. And if you don't know who Sean Carey is, he goes by S. Carey. I'll give you a quick biographical download. He is from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and he's best known as the drummer and supporting vocalist of indie folk band Bonnie Vare. He grew up in Lake Geneva, which is actually like 20 minutes from where Ashley uh, lived in Wisconsin. Uh, If you don't know much about even the story about how he met Justin Vernon, he listened to Bonnie Vare's first record on MySpace, learned all of the songs, then went to a show and introduced himself to Justin Vernon. I actually don't know if they knew each other beforehand or not. Maybe they did, but basically they discovered oh wow we sing really well together and justin vernon hired him to be a part of the band and he's been a part of the project ever since wow uh pretty incredible and he's so s carey has released several solo records and this one is called shadowlands and it is a collaboration with jazz trumpeteer john raymond and various other artists such as aaron parks and gordy this is an incredible, incredible record. It is vast in its genre exploration and its fusion of jazz and indie music, which I really, really find fascinating that they were able to so clearly and succinctly put those genres together and put something really awesome together. This song is called Transient. It's one of the instrumental tracks off the record. I'll let you listen to it for just a second. So this is kind of more of the jazz flavored track, but I'm gonna play a, a snippet of another song so you can get a taste of the variety that's on this record that I just really love. This next track's called Blood Orange. I, I'm very curious. Does he? Is there anywhere where he explains uh, the title, Shadowlands? I I didn't do that much of a deep dive in terms of. I was just curious the because behind the record and because the first the place I ever heard that term uh, was C.S. Lewis. And he's kind of the one well, who, who popularized it. Have you looked at the title? Have you looked at the tracks? Nope. There's a song called Already Not Yet on that this record. That is very interesting. And there's a song called Morning Prayer. Chrysalis. And a song called Steadfast and Beholding. What is happening right now? But uh, this is one of the other more indie-infused tracks here. This This song, 
just wait until the, it takes a minute. It's a slow burn to get to the chorus, but man, it's good. Not to interrupt, but do you feel like he's had a lot of influence on Bon Iver and their sound? Probably. Because you, you always can hear it. You always think Justin Vernon, but I'm like, is this guy? Yeah, there's a lot of overlap there with textures and sonic decisions. I mean, to me, this is, dare I say, uh -oh. I like this record more than Bonnie Bear's last two records. Wow. Hot take. Sorry. I mean, it, feel, it does feel a little like older Bon Iver Yes. That we all love. It feels like that second record a lot. It's a good fall record, man. Put this on. Yes. It just flows, dude. It is fantastic. This is really, is this going to be my favorite record of the year? Whoa. I don't know. We'll have to find out in December when I release my top 10 list. But yeah. Wow. Check it out. Shadowlands. S. Carey. John Raymond, incredible, incredible effort from those folks. Yeah, I'm fairly certain that the way Lewis kind of would use that term, because it shows up in a couple of places, and there's actually a movie uh, oh, about yeah. him called Shadowlands. Um, but I think he's drawing on the idea of, like, Plato's Cave, um, if you're familiar with that. It's, it, a lot of people, even if they don't do a deep dive into philosophy, if you have had any kind of conversation about philosophy in school they probably talked about cato's uh, plato's cave uh, plato's closet <laughs> right yeah i love which, that place which the idea the idea by plato in plato's cave is he's like our experience of living in this world is like the experience of someone looking at the wall of a cave and there's a fire behind them and they're just seeing shadows like his idea was that this world is imperfect and what we experience here is not the world of perfection that there is this perfect idea mm -hmm. that exists out there which you can transpose that into a christian key of the idea there there's definitely ways it falls apart but the idea that we live in a broken world Right. And that there is a way the world was meant to be and the way it will be redeemed to be. And so Lewis would use the current state of the world like he would describe it as like the shadow lands. Like we are living mm. in the midst of a broken world. Where the we're upside not. down, even. <laughs> to go back to, to horror films. To go back films to Stranger and, Things. Oh, my gosh. Stranger Things. Anyway, all right. Yeah, that's good. Dude, I'm excited. See, is this it is on? why I need wow. Jonathan on my in my segments, because <laughs> I can talk about all the music and the backgrounds, and then he, he goes deep. Is it is it, uh, is it on vinyl? Oh, I'm sure it is. Nice. Maybe oh, we can get to, an interview sure with him. With Sean Carey. Go for it. Reach you out, know, man. I, Email I'll him. reach out and say, man, my wife grew up 20 minutes from where, where you were born and grew up. And there's Lake, your, Lake there's Geneva your is really cool. There's your connection. It's a really – Wisconsin, man. There, oh, yeah. Something really interesting going on up there. It's uh, They actually recorded it at this really cool studio up in Wisconsin. I don't know if it's in Eau Claire or if it's somewhere else. But uh, a lot of good music to come out of there, thanks to uh, Mr. Justin Vernon and some uh, some of his folks. So. Sweet. Cool. All right, book time. You got a horror book for us today? A little Stephen not. King? I've actually been reading a Stephen King book. I think we already talked which about one? that. Oh, which one did you? Uh, the newer one? The Stand. The Stand. It's, it's what Jeff and Amy Ross recommended. Is this kind of horror film-esque? Adam's Family, maybe? It's giving me nightmares. 
All right, welcome to another edition, episode, segment of Bradford's Book Club. Today I'm excited. It's a book that I've just started dipping my toes into, metaphorically speaking, called The Connected Life, The Art and Science of Relational Spirituality. John Mark and Jonathan, have you all heard of this book? Nope. Not at all. Of course you haven't. It's a book by Todd Hall. Todd Hall is at Biola University, and he is a theologian and a psychologist. I've read some of his stuff before, really enjoyed it. Let me tell you a little bit about this book. It's no secret that we live in an increasingly isolated world. We've talked about that here on the podcast The pandemic only exacerbated what was already a startling trend. Loneliness and disconnection have been on the rise for a long time in our society. We long for a deep sense of meaning to make sense of our lives, but we don't know how to find it. Even worse, we often search for it in unhealthy ways that hinder the very thing we're desperate for. Genuine relational connection. In The Connected Life, Hall offers the fruit of that work of um, researching human relationships for many years. He contends that real human growth doesn't come through head knowledge alone, but through relational knowledge and strong attachment bonds. It's our relationships with God and others that lead to authentic transformation. Ultimately, the family of God provides the best context for lasting growth. There's a lot of great stuff in this book. I just want to read a little portion. Would that be okay? Could I do that? Would y'all be all right with that? Would y'all approve of that? Still like me when it's over? Thanks. They're both nodding and smiling. Listen to what he says here. I thought this was great. This is just to wet your whistle. Um, he goes, uh, one t- trend, or let me back up. Uh, over the past 50 years, we've seen a decline in emotional well-being that's parallel with decreasing social connection. A decline in emotional well-being is parallel with decreasing social connection. One trend that illustrates this is the increasing rates of depression in recent decades. Psychologist Martin Siegelman stated, the rate of depression over the last two generations has increased roughly tenfold. Along with depression, we've seen an alarming increase in loneliness. In a 2017 article in Harvard Business Review, former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy stated, loneliness is a growing health epidemic. He goes on to note that despite being more technologically connected, uh, more technologically connected than ever, rates of loneliness have more than doubled since the 1980s. In addition to general social isolation, over half the U.S. adults Recently reported feeling, this is interesting and kind of horrifying, over half of U.S. adults recently reported feeling like no one knows them well. Mm. Mm, So how do we get here? What do we do about it? These are things that Todd Hall addresses in his book, (laughs) The Connected Life, The Art and Science of Relational Spirituality. Check it out. I've enjoyed it so far. I think you will too. How much time does he spend on the what should we do about it uh, portion, do you think? 
Like what, That's a great question. But because, and I ask because, like, I feel like I have the conversation a ton where people recognize disconnectedness, loneliness, and they'll even recognize causes. Like, people will talk about, you know, the problems that uh, the ways we try to connect, whether that's through social media or technology or whatever. Like, they'll talk about all the problems with that, anxiety it causes, jealousy, blah, blah, blah. Like, people will acknowledge all that. But I feel like we're in this space where we're having that conversation mm-hmm. and changing nothing <laughs> like doing nothing different yeah like like it, it, it's and I, I feel like the only solutions that people have to offer aren't necessarily always great solutions so like for me y'all know me i have an extreme personality and so the solution in my life was like well i just won't be on social media mm-hmm. and that works for me mm-hmm. but i realize that's not like that's not a solution like sure, long yeah. term and so mm-hmm. i don't know i was just curious how long he may spend in the book discussing potential things you can can do to try and reclaim yes living a, a connected life well like i said i've just started dipping my toes in so i can't uh you know give you a satisfactory answer but my guess is going to be that he's going to explore something that's called attachment theory which okay. is very popular in the world of psychology. And what I think he's going to do, he's going to do a little theological triage and he's going to take attachment theory. And he's going to say, okay, how do we think about this from a Christian perspective? And how does Christianity actually make sense of this, explain why this is the case, and then offer resources that can lead to healing in relationships? And so one of the things that I think will be fruitful is he's going to talk about family of origin. He's going to talk about... Uh, disconnection. He's going to talk about childhood trauma, and he's going to talk about how all those things affect our relational life. And so one of the things that I might think might be helpful for people if they read it is that uh, they might walk away with a better understanding of themselves, a better understanding of how our society operates today. You know, we talk about the fact that we're not, you know, observers in the culture, but rather we're swimming in the culture. So one of the things he talks about that already got me thinking was he talks about how social clubs um, or a thing that were so popular with our father's generation, like, I don't know about y'all's dads, but my dad was like, Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Bowling Club. I don't think he did Bowling Club. But, right, I mean, right. just from a societal standpoint, a cultural standpoint, that was very common, right? right. I, I think we can even talk about churches and church programming and the amount of church programming that so many churches oh for sure i mean my, my dad entered ministry through running family life centers which at the time were the equivalent of a church version of a ymca that's right like full-on memberships name tags working out classes blah 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 like all that yes. all the things you would experience at a ymca those were the first <laughs> the first uh a family life center my dad ran had a bowling alley. But that's the point, to your point. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, he's already kind of alluding to it, but I think he's talking about, okay, yes, the internet and our phones uh, has offered a kind of connection and online gathering and people connecting with other people and communicating about topics and hobby and interest. But I think he's going to also point out how that's lessened physical gathering. I, th- mm-hmm. I imagine from kind of a bio, psychological, social, spiritual standpoint, he's going to talk about how important that is. He's also, 
Um, it's all very interesting in light of our conversations yesterday about our Advent series. That's right. I'm already thinking about it, Jonathan. I'm right? a step ahead of you. Yeah. Oh, so he's. I think it's going to allow us to take a look at, oh, wow, yeah, how did we get here as a culture? Oh, wow, things have changed. How has that affected our loneliness, our connection with other people, our mental health even? Um, what things might we want to change? What things might we want to incorporate within our life? So I imagine it's going to be uh, those sorts of things. You so know, it's already got me thinking. John Mark, I think that what we should do um, moving into the future is make 50% of Bradford's book clubs what we just experienced, like him recommending a book, and the other half should be book reports <laughs> where he has to come back and he can actually answer my questions about the book because he's finished it. And then he has to give a report on it. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm that sounds like a lot. Nothing. I'm going to need a book report on my desk by Monday. Nothing says fun like an assignment. <laughs> so, Well, now that we've like yeah. basically recorded a full-length episode through talking about horror films and all of that, yeah, let's record a whole other full-length episode with what we actually plan to do today. <laughs> yeah, we could keep going, that's for sure. Let's yep. do it. All right. Well... Um, so what we wanted to have a conversation about today is actually something that we have been having a conversation about uh, as, a, as a staff and amongst our elders for a very, very long time, and then as a body just over the course of the last month, and that is deacons and deaconesses. So mm -hmm. if you have not been around Shades over the past couple of weeks, we actually did a little mini sermon series uh, on deacons and deaconesses, and we did that because we have made the move at Shades to officially have deacons and deaconesses yay <laughs> our studio audience loves it they do they do and so one of the things i talked about is for years uh shades has had a role in leadership that we called servant leaders this was developed before any of us were ever here and servant leaders have been those who have led various ministries at Shades. So let's just name a few. So there's been a servant leader of the coffee team. There's been a servant leader of facilities. There's been... Greeters. Greeters. Mm-hmm. Brad, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pointing at the Brad. Arts, like, the art ministry. <laughs> offering team. Yeah, offering team. Security. Yeah. So any of these kinds of ministries, anybody that's been in a leadership role, and, and helping give direction to the team underneath them. We've, we've called him a servant leader. And for years, I have basically been saying to people, that's like our version of deacons and deaconesses because the Greek word diakonos literally means servant and deacons are people who lead out in serving. They are servant leaders. But what we've been talking about over the last couple of years is why not make the move to officially call them deacons and deaconesses if we believe that's biblical and there were some more things we felt like uh could be included like from our study in scripture of deacons we're like we could make these roles a little bit more robust and there are things that we could do that would probably just help to strengthen uh, us as Shades Valley as a whole to better serve the body to better care for the body and so um I, I did a lot of personal study and then walked through a bunch of stuff with the elders and a plan was developed. And then eventually when we were able to be ready to communicate that to the body, that's what we've tried to do over the last month uh, and, and to roll it all out. So this past Sunday, 
we uh, installed everybody who was uh, a servant leader. They are now officially a deacon and a deaconess of shades, and we installed them. So all of that to say, uh, this is really important. It's, it's a big, big change uh, for us here at Shades. And we recognize, even though we just spent two Sundays doing a series on it, not everybody was here. Not everybody heard everything we talked about. So we wanted to take at least one episode of Shades Midweek to talk about those things. So I present you with one of two options. Option A, if you weren't here this past week, you can stop this podcast right now. <laughs> And you can go listen to the sermons from the past two weeks. One was called uh, What Are Deacons? And the second one was called Who Are Deacons? Uh, Or if you prefer, you can listen to the rest of our conversation because we are literally going to re, we're going to do something we've never done uh, where we're literally just going to rehash all of that information just in conversational format because we believe it's important. And I would love to get Brad and John Mark's interjections and opinions and thoughts along the way. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. So we're going to start off just, and well, and part of it too is uh, these past two Sundays were crazy um, because of a lot of different things going on. And so I think uh, both of you, I think, missed significant portions of the messages, at least on one of those weeks. One could say. So we'll get, yeah, (laughs) we'll get live reactions. I don't know if it's because uh, the fire department got called one week and uh, maybe the other one there was like, you know, uh, the taco biggest fundraiser. dining events we've had. <laughs> yep. Everybody, don't worry. the The fire department was not called because there was a fire. It was. It was fine. Everything That's was. Right. Fine. Everything was fine. Um. Anyway, so so some of this will be new for you guys. So yeah. So we'll just start with the stuff that we covered that first week when we asked the question, "What are deacons?" And basically, the way that we walked through this was by. Has, Going to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, which is where the overwhelming majority of people will go um, throughout church history to talk about how the office of deacon began. No, uh, in Acts chapter 6, the the situation that unfolds there, these, uh, these men that are selected in that passage, they're never officially called deacons in that passage, uh, but it, I think, when you look at the office of deacon, when you look at what's happening in Acts 6, and then you look at the testimony of church history, I think it becomes pretty obvious that this has got to be the birthplace of this office. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an easy place to talk about the answer to what are deacons. And basically I said that I think this passage presents us with a five-fold answer. I took notes. You took, um, Look at John Mark I, over here. I have them in my phone. <laughs> this was the sermon that I heard the majority of. It was right. this past Sunday that I missed a lot. But I did take the notes. I, I, nice. have, the, I have the statement here. Well, nice. John Mark, why don't you just walk through the rest of it? And- <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I took the this five-fold answer and I put it into one long sentence. So I'm just going to read the sentence for the answer to what deacons are. And then we'll walk through it a piece at a time and discuss, discuss it just a little bit. So here's the answer. Deacons are servants chosen by the church to support the ministry of the elders by meeting ministry needs in a manner that promotes and protects the church's internal unity and external witness. Now, I recognize the fact that that was a lot. So let's take it one piece at a time. What are deacons? The first piece of that answer is deacons are servants. I don't know that there's a lot to say right here. 
Uh, we've already talked about the fact that the Greek word diakonos literally means servant. Um, this is what deacons do. They lead out and serve. This is what we see in Acts 6. These uh, seven men are chosen and set aside to figure out a very practical serving task. And so I, I think that everyone kind of recognizes this. Maybe what is good to say right here um, is that a lot of people, if you grew up in a church with deacons, uh, maybe they didn't come across to you as servants. That wasn't the ultimate defining thing. What if I grew up in a Baptist church? Would that be my experience? <laughs> it depends. It really does depend, Brad. Um, yeah. Did either of you, like y'all's churches growing up, did y'all have deacons in your church? We did. I'm trying to think. You know, we I grew up independent, charismatic. There yeah, was, y'all there were loosey-goosey, man. There was definitely <laughs> like, no, I'm seriously. I'm there, kidding. No, there was definitely a like. Um, Fire team or what? Like a council. Yeah, yeah, like a church council. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we, we, yeah, I, I can't, I don't really think that we had elders or deacons. And I think the church that my parents were at prior to me being born was a Baptist church. And I think my dad was a deacon at one time for that Baptist church. I'm curious, uh, your time at Highlands, does Highlands have deacons? They had elders for a time when I was there. I don't know if they still have elders. I can't say. I'm well, just curious. But they it, never had deacons, though. What about So it, your church, you were yes. a Baptist church. Y'all definitely had deacons. Do you remember anything about how they functioned? Had deacons. My dad was a deacon for a little bit, and okay. the way that they functioned would be more similar to the way our elders function. Uh, yeah. That's really common, or, or was, I think, in, in the Baptist circles that I grew up in. I do think that that's shifting and changing. There, I think so, yeah, for sure. There are sure. a ton of Baptist churches now that I know that have elders. Yeah. You know, so I, I think there's been a, a shift in the culture. But growing up, yeah, my impression, uh, at least in my younger years, was that deacons were almost like this board. Like a review board. Yeah. Trustee, then, board of trustees. Right, board right. of trustees. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's we're to make sure the pastors are doing their job, kind of hold them accountable. Kind of make business decisions. Oversight. Business financial decisions. decisions yeah, yeah, yeah. Building decisions. Now, I would say uh, it, later – like as I grew up, that shifted at the church that I grew up at because we got a new pastor and our church definitely shifted more to kind of the CEO model mm. um, where it was kind of like the lead pastor is like the end-all be-all. And deacons at that point, from my memory, shifted more into uh, care for widows. That was that was their primary role. Now that does have come out of Acts chapter 6. Out of Acts chapter 6, what you see, the original call for deacons was to make sure that widows were being cared for uh, properly. And so that's been a primary function in a lot of churches. Um, I don't think that Acts chapter 6 means for that to be the defining function of deacons, but that's kind of more what it became uh, at, at my church. And so, yeah, w- wherever you grew up, maybe you have an idea of deacons, maybe not, but, but yeah, I think that it's important that we start with the biblical heart of what they are, mm-hmm. and that is to lead out. I say lead out in serving because in Acts chapter 6, one of the interesting things is this problem arises with widows being neglected, and when the apostles call for the church to set aside uh, these seven uh, to, to serve in this capacity, the apostles do not prescribe for them 
how to meet this need. Like, they're supposed to figure it out. Like, they're to lead in serving. And that's why I use that terminology right there. Mm. So, yeah, so deacons are servants. Next, deacons are servants chosen by the church. So we talked about that a little bit on that Sunday. This is what we see happen in Acts chapter 6, the con- the entire congregation's involvement in selecting uh, deacons. This is for those of us that come from congregational churches. We are a congregational church here at Shades Valley, which means that the congregation is the ultimate governing body, um, has ultimate authority. Uh, the For congregational churches, the entire congregation is involved in a lot of its significant decision-making. Now, we are an elder-led congregational church, and what that means is that the congregation has invested uh, trust and authority to the elders to make a number of decisions without having to like vote on every single one as an entire congregation. So we're kind of a mutt. <laughs> Not really, because still at the end of the day, ultimate authority lies with the congregation because the congregation chooses its elders. There's right. a process for the congregation to remove elders. They're, like At the end of the day final gavel if we're thinking like supreme court it's the congregation not right. the elders you know so uh so we are a congregational church in our ultimate structure uh but it's it's different from so again to reference my background going up uh in a baptist church we were what i would have called like at least in my younger years a more extreme version of congregationalism where it's like the entire church, you got to have monthly business meetings because you can't do anything. Well, and that's what I was kind of drawing, yeah, drawing out. Yeah, you can't do anything unless like the entire everything church should it. be voted on by the entire congregation. Yeah, kind of vibe. Right, right. So yeah, but we do see uh, one of the most important decisions I think that a church can make is who is going to be involved in its leadership, and so that's mm-hmm. why in the majority of congregational churches. Uh, churches are involved in choosing of their pastors, if they have elders, and choosing of their elders, and if they have deacons, and choosing of their deacons. So really quickly, one of the ways this will look, what this will look like at Shades, we didn't get to talk about this a ton. We did a little bit this past Sunday. But uh, first, here at the beginning, it, it looks a little different. Because we have had servant leaders who've been in their positions for so long, we transitioned them in to being the first deacons and deaconesses because we feel like uh, we as a congregation have been involved in affirming their leadership for years now. Right. Yep. You know, it, it's not like we didn't have any involvement in choosing them. I, it, it feels like if we didn't want them as leaders, we would have said something by now kind of thing. Like it feels <laughs> like we've been affirming them for a long time. So we transitioned them into their roles. But moving forward, there are two primary ways for the congregation to be involved in this. One is uh, if you're a member of Shades, you can nominate someone to be a deacon um, of a service area that we articulate there is a need for. Um, what are some of those? We articulated a lot of them this past Sunday, uh, but like baptism team, um, communion needs a deacon leader, uh, community events, kitchen, kitchen, uh, kitchen like coordination. Um, so we're we're trying to put out before the congregation. Here are some things that would be awesome to have deacon leadership for. Right. 
but you can also bring something to our attention. Like if there's something that you're like, hey, we could use some leadership there and we don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the congregation can nominate um, somebody to serve as a deacon. You can do that by emailing us, elders at shadesvalley.org. We've provided a bulletin insert last week. We'll provide one again this week that you can fill out to do that. You, you can just talk to one of us if you want to, to to nominate somebody. If there's a position you feel called to, you can nominate yourself. <laughs> um, that's a possibility too. Uh, but but that's one way you can be involved. And the second is this. When someone is nominated to fill a deacon role, first they have to like pass through the elders. Like The elders will kind of look at that person, look at the position and all of that. Uh, have a conversation with them because obviously they have to be willing and want to do it. Um, but if if all that checks out, then the person is going to get put before the congregation. At the conclusion of a service, we will bring that person up. Let's say it was uh, Ashley DeRoe. And we're like, Ashley DeRoe has accepted a nomination to serve as a deaconess in this way. Um, if you have any questions or objections please contact us over the course of this next week. And I would have some big objections, so let me just say. <laughs> um, but so there will be that opportunity. It's not as lengthy of an opportunity as when we are installing elders, but there will be that opportunity. And, we, and we'll get the word out in multiple ways. We won't just announce it on Sunday. Like We'll announce it through our email and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But if you had any concerns, you could express those, and we would definitely you know, go back to the drawing board. Uh, but if not, then the following Sunday, uh, we'll bring them up at the end of uh, the service for affirmation, um, which will just be the same way we do the budget, which is all in favor, yay, all opposed, nay. And and that's the process by which the congregation can be involved um, in selecting and installing deacons. All right, I know we got to move faster. So the third portion of this, deacons are servants chosen by the church to support the ministry of the elders by meeting ministry needs. So, Bradford, why don't you explain that? (laughs) Jonathan, I would love to hear you explain it since I didn't get to hear the sermon. Oh, my word. So basically what we're saying right here is the reason we see in Acts chapter 6 uh, for the creation of deacons is because there's this need that needs to be met and the apostles who were kind of like de facto elders at this point of the Jerusalem church, they're being looked at to solve this issue. And they basically say, if we do that, we're going to have to set aside some really important things that we've been called to, namely prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, and, and, so we need to come up with a different solution. We need help is basically what they're they're saying right there. So deacons were created to help um, and specifically to help the elders so that the elders could focus on their calling. The biggest distinction, if, if you read the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 for elders and the qualifications for deacons, the largest difference between the two is that the elders are supposed to be able to teach. They're supposed to be able to teach and to uh, defend so the, 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 uh, the doctrine of the church. So the elders have a responsibility uh, for doctrinal fidelity, teaching and defending the faith, uh, and shepherding. They, so doctrine and discipline, if we want to alliterate. 
are, are kind of these significant responsibilities of the elders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so they have to be able to focus on that. And so deacons were created to help relieve other very important needs so the elders could remain focused. So that's how they support the ministry of the elders, and they do it by meeting these kind of practical ministry needs. So, so for instance, Bradford, mm-hmm. you're supposed to preach this upcoming Sunday. Lord willing. Imagine that none of our deacons and deaconesses exist. What kinds of things might take you away from the time you need to prepare? Me not showing up because I would be too overwhelmed. <laughs> yes. What's like a normal thing that happens in the course of the week that people don't know that our deacons and deaconesses take care of so that we can remain focused on preparing to teach, preparing to lead worship, meeting with people, counseling with people, shepherding people, caring? What, what are some of the things? Mm-hmm. I mean, we could talk about the security team. So the security team has to be scheduled, and if someone can't show up, then someone needs to handle that, make sure they know what to do. All those responsibilities are covered. Also, uh, you could uh, put in that communion team. Yeah. Someone's got to schedule the communion team. We could also A lot of logistical things like that. A lot of logistical things. There's our greeters ministry, so who's scheduling – the greeters to show up and welcome everyone. Because what about what about don't have greeters? It's Monday and uh, the air conditioner quits working. That's right. So I would normally have to spend four hours <laughs> uh, trying to get the AC person here. Just kidding. We love our AC. You people. you would fix it yourself. Yep, Brad. I would spend normally. the afternoon. Yep, fixing Typically. it. Fixing it myself <laughs> for sure. I mean, Jonathan, there's so many things. Right. That are done by deacons that we could not function um, or we would function for a season and then all, We'd all of get the pastors out. and elders would get burned out and quit. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's just live fire, like on the ground, brass tacks. Um, how many more phrases can I throw on that? <laughs> of, of just evidence of what, Rubber, on the, rubber meets rubber the road. Me, that's where the rubber meets the road. At the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> when it's all said and done. Oh, my word. Yeah, this is, these are practical ways that our deacons and deaconesses uh, help uh, support the ministry of what the pastors and the elders do um, by meeting all of these different ministry needs. And they don't just meet these needs, kind of the final two portions, and we can do these together. Uh, they meet these needs in a way, in a manner that promotes and protects the church's internal unity and external witness. Those are the last two pieces, the internal unity and external witness. And this, honestly, for me, guys, like as I began to explore all of this, study, dig into this, uh, to try and cast a vision for it here at Shades, uh, this was the biggest thing that struck me, just mm-hmm. as something that was so obvious that I had neglected Mm. is that the purpose of deacons in Acts chapter six, yes, is to solve this practical need, but, but deeper underneath that, it is to promote and protect the unity of the church. Mm -hmm. And I think that this transposes the significance of deacons into just a different register altogether. Like it's not, Oh yeah, 
we need some practical stuff done, and they're the ones who get the practical stuff done. It's, you know, they do all of this in a way that is actually promoting and protecting uh, our unity as a body here at Shades Valley Community Church. Um, mm-hmm. And they do it in a way that protects and promotes uh, our external witness to the community around us. And those two things, they're, they're joined. Because if we're a church that isn't unified, that destroys our external witness. If we're a church that's unified, it promotes our external witness. And so, yeah, I just I, I think that this adds a new layer of significance to the work that deacons and deaconesses do. Yeah, it's one of those things. It, this would be complete chaos, but it's almost like you don't know what you have until you don't have it. Mm-hmm. So it'd be fun to just say, hey, deacons, don't come to Shades or do anything for a month. And then let's just see what happens. Um, yeah, let's see what the unity of the church looks like <laughs> when the air conditioning is out. For four. I don't think people realize just what it takes facility-wise just I mean, to make sure our heating and air is working. Well, I mean, just think about if you didn't have anybody scheduling the coffee team. Think about how many people would be well, upset <laughs> if there wasn't coffee available. Well, and this is to speak to my pastoral experience at Shades, but... I have lots of friends who are pastors at churches where they don't really have deacons. And if they do, it's in word and not in service. And they do have to do a lot of the deacon tasks. And I will say they are burnout. Um, they say that they don't want to uh, prepare a sermon for Sunday because there's so many other things that they have to do. They don't feel like they have the time to get yeah. into it. Um, they also feel like they don't have time to meet with people because there are all these other things that are going on. It's taking time away from their family. And I know several people that ultimately said, I just can't keep doing this when they walk away and leave. And so I will say a huge gift of not only having a plurality of elders, but also having a plurality of deacons that serve is that it gives the time and the space for us as pastors to meet with people. And it also gives us time to get in the word and to Mm -hmm. study and to read, and to teach, and to think about some of these, what, um, I don't want to say, what's the word I'm looking for? Think about things like the vision, and where Shades Valley is going, and who we are, and are we living in accordance with that, and is that living in accordance to Scripture? Those are things that elders and pastors are supposed to be doing, and a lot of times, I think pastors can get sucked up by the immediate kind of diaconate. The, The tyranny of the immediate. Yes, things and so that's why i'm personally very grateful yeah and i mean talk about promoting the unity of the church so just the situation that you just described of of friends in places that that don't have deacons and deaconesses functioning properly like what happens to a pastor's heart towards their church and towards their congregation in that situation bitterness frustration Mm -hmm. anger like, it's not drawing a pastor and a congregation together in and w- unity. And what happens to the congregation? They're just, they're sitting there, they become an audience, mm-hmm. they become a crowd, they become a group of critics, all right, for what's happening instead of being brought in mm-hmm. by the deacons and deaconesses who are examples of service and yeah. draw people into service as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. I think in all of these ways, you just you begin to see, you know, the significance of what deacons and deaconesses do 
you know, it's it's more than just fulfilling a function, mm-hmm. you know, or checking off a box or what have not. It's it's quite significant um, to multiple aspects of the life of of a church. So, yeah, what are deacons? They're servants chosen by the church to support the ministry of the elders by meeting ministry needs in a manner that promotes and protects the church's internal unity and external witness. Awesome. All Love right. It. I don't know how long we've been recording. Do we want to keep going or do we want to do two episodes on deacons and deaconesses? We, well, <laughs> given that we didn't really start till 1030 today, we've probably been on for almost an hour now. Okay. Getting close to an hour. I'm good to keep going. Y'all good to keep going? I mean, I'm a little tired, but I can keep going. I'll hit my <laughs> second win. I'm just getting hungry, but let's I'm, let's I'm continue. A hungry too. All right. Well, hey, if you want this to be two episodes, then stop now and come back later. We'll do a timestamp. We'll do this quickly. We'll do this quickly. So in the second week, we covered uh, who who are deacons, and for that, we did go to First Timothy chapter three, which is where Timothy lists out these qualifications uh, for deacons and deaconesses and who should serve as deacons. So I'll just read very quickly. First Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, but deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So, in answer to that, in, in, in light of that, we answered the question, who are deacons? And I did it in the same way uh, as the previous week. So, I, I think there's a fourfold answer here, and I put it in one long sentence. So, I'll start by giving you the one long sentence, and then we'll take it one piece at a time, but much faster than we did last time. So... Who are deacons? Deacons are men and women known for serving in word, desire, and deed, demonstrating real faith amidst real life over time. So the first part of that answer, deacons are men and women. And so when you look at this passage, there can be a debate as to whether or not this passage teaches that just men should fulfill or should fill the office of deacon, or does it teach that men and women should fill the office of deacon? Um, and I made an argument on Sunday that this passage, not just other places in Scripture, but this specific passage teaches that both men and women are called to this office. Uh, there are a lot of arguments, and if you want to hear the arguments for both sides, I offered we can sit down over coffee and do that. I am happy to do that. But I basically offered four reasons why I believe that this passage teaches um, that uh, men and women are called to this office. And the first one is that the translation in verse 11, their wives, where it kind of, the ESV makes it sound like, hey, we're talking about deacons, now we're talking about deacons' wives. Uh, that's not what the Greek actually says. The possessive pronoun there, it's not there um, at all. It's one word. The word is gunikos, which simply mean it can mean wives. It can also just mean women. One of the things I didn't talk about on Sunday is that this word appears, I think, eight times in First Timothy. And in the overwhelming majority of those times, it is obviously women to be translated women and not as wives. And so not that that means that it can't be wives right here, but what I do think that means is if this is going to be the place where it means wives, like you got to be able to make a strong argument for that. 
And the fact that the possessive pronoun is not there is interesting if that's going to be wives. Why wouldn't he have said their wives or their own wives? Mm. Um, Also, I didn't mention this on Sunday, but if he is talking about wives, why did he not do the exact same thing when going through qualifications for elders? Why not talk about the elders and, okay, elders' wives need to be uh, need to have these qualities. Why, why just do that with deacons? It doesn't make sense, especially if, in most cases, people are going to look at the office of elder and say that has an extra layer of, like, seriousness to it, you know? And so it, it, it doesn't make sense that at the office that uh, is a serious office, but not the same as elder, like that's where we're going to talk about qualifications for mm. for wives. So just some interesting things like that. Uh, but so I think that the correct translation of the word right there is women. And I think it's specifically talking about women who are to serve in the office of deacon. And the second reason I gave for that is because of the word likewise. So at the beginning of verse 11, it says the women likewise. So Paul's in the midst of a list of uh, church offices and qualifications for those offices. The first one he gives at the beginning of the chapter is the office of elder. And then in verse 8, he says, deacons likewise. What does he mean? He means, well, like the elders. So I just gave you elders, and they have qualifications. Deacons likewise have qualifications. And then you get to verse 11, women, the women, likewise. Syntactically, that likewise references back up to the elders. Just like verse 8 references back up to the elders. So in other words, it's like he's saying elders have qualifications. Deacons have qualifications like the elders do. Deaconesses have qualifications like the elders do. Like that is the most natural way to read Paul basically giving us kind of like this linguistic outline of what he is talking about right here. So, yeah, so those are kind of some linguistic reasons that I think he is talking about deaconesses right here. And actually, there's one last one that I gave on Sunday, a a linguistic reason, because some people may say, Jonathan, if that is what he's talking about, then why doesn't he just call them deaconesses? Like, why would he say deacons likewise and then say women likewise? And the reason for that is because the word deaconesses did not exist yet. Like that term literally had not been coined. It would be pretty quickly and not too long later, but it it didn't exist yet. Mm. Um, There is a place, I talked about the fact that there is a place in Romans chapter 16 where the apostle Paul does call a woman a deacon, but even there he's got to use the male form of the word because the feminine form did not exist yet. And who, who am I talking about right there? I'm talking about Phoebe. Uh, in Romans 16 and verse 1, I commend to you our sister, this is clearly a lady, uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church at Centria. And I also took some time on Sunday to talk about why uh, when he calls Phoebe a deacon there, he's talking about the office of deacon. He's not just generally calling her a servant because we, we acknowledged two weeks ago, that the word, the Greek word diakonos, it doesn't have to always mean office of deacon. It can it can literally mean just uh, servant in general. And it gets used that way all over the place in Scripture. Uh, Jesus calls himself diakonos. He calls his disciples diakonos. He's not saying 
he and they hold the office of deacon. He's talking about them being servants. Paul will call himself a diakonos of the gospel. He, he's not, he doesn't hold the office of deacon. He's a servant of the gospel. He'll call Timothy a diakonos of the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy is not a deacon. He, it's just a generic use of the term. So how do we know? When he talks about Phoebe, a diakonos, is he just calling her a servant in general, or is this the office? Well, we know it's the office because he calls her a diakonos of the church at Centria. He, like, names a specific local church. And every single time that happens in the New Testament, it's talking about an official church office. Every single time. So, I think that all of that is is clear and compelling evidence to make the argument that in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is addressing women deacons. I did add on Sunday an argument from church history that basically women deacons, deaconesses, they appear very early in church history um, and are talked about pretty consistently throughout church history. And even the way that some early church fathers talk specifically about this passage in 1 Timothy 3, they're like, yeah, Paul's talking about deaconesses. So I'll just read you just one. Clement of Alexandria. So we're talking around 200 AD right here. We are not far removed. Um, 200 AD, Clement of Alexandria, he's a Christian theologian, and this is what he says about 1 Timothy 3. He says, We are also aware of all the things that the noble Paul prescribed on the subject of female deacons in one of the two epistles to Timothy. I mean, Clement's like, yeah, that's that's what that's about. And you can find, like, that all throughout church history. I mentioned Origen, John Chrysostom, Jerome, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon. Like, they all taught the exact same thing about this passage. And no, that doesn't mean, like, that just because these people said it, that's what it means. But but what I said on Sunday is when you take that and then add it to the textual evidence we've already seen, it seems seems pretty pretty clear to me. So at Shades Valley, we embrace men and women, both as deacons, deaconesses. Any comments from, from you two? Care to add anything? That was well said. <laughs> Oh, any I'm objections? Not, any objections disagree. when I want to get one of y'all in trouble? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. I said I was going to do this faster, so we'll do the rest of it faster. Deacons are men and women known for serving. Uh, Paul says they're dignified, like they're known for having a certain kind of character. What character is that? It's for serving. That unfolds in the next portion of what he tells us. Deacons are men and women known for serving in word, desire, and deed. I'm not going to rehash all of this. You can go listen to the sermon if you want to. But basically, if you compare verse 8 and verse 11, Paul lays out three qualifications for deacons and three qualifications for deaconesses. And I think he's saying the exact same three qualifications, just with different wording. The first qualification has to do with words. So they're not to be... Uh, double-tongued, or they're not to be slanderers, uh, which basically means they're to use their words to build other people up, not tear them down. They're to use their words to serve. 
The second qualification that he gives, they're not to be addicted to much wine, or in other words, they're to be sober-minded. This has to do with their desires. I, I talked about on Sunday kind of maybe the reason that Paul specifically goes after wine right here. You can listen to the sermon for that. But basically, their desires can't be pointed towards themselves. They have to be pointed at others. They have to be pointed at serving. And then third, he says they're not to be greedy for dishonest gain, or in other words, they're to be faithful in all things, not dishonest, but faithful. In other words, their deeds, their actions can't be pointed at serving themselves. They have to be pointed at serving others. They serve other people in deeds. Deacons are men and women known for serving others in word, desire, and deed. And the final thing I said that we get from this passage is that when you when you step back from that, what that means is that they are people who demonstrate real faith amidst real life over time. Deacons are men and women known for serving in word, desire, and deed, demonstrating real faith amidst real life over time. They demonstrate real faith. Verse 9, Paul says they got to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they got to hold to the gospel, but not just say they hold to the gospel. They got to have a clear conscience. They can't say that and then live a different way. They have to have a real faith. And that real faith plays out amidst real life. This is where I went to verse 12, where Paul says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. I made the argument on Sunday as to why he directs that uh, uh, instruction specifically at male deacons. You can go listen to the sermon to find out why. I do think that it's a principle that applies to both male and female deacons. I think there is a cultural contextual reason that he is saying it specifically to men. But what he's basically saying is your real faith that I just said you need to have, that needs to play out in real life. It needs to play out in the re- starting with the relationships where it's hardest for it to play out, the relationships that you're closest with, your, your spouse and your kids. Or if you're single in, in your relationships with people you date or those who are closest, with you, closest to you. Like your real faith has got to play out in real life in those relationships. And this has to not just be a momentary thing. It's got to happen over time. So that's verse 10. Let deacons also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. In other words, blameless is a way of talking about consistency. It's not a way of talking about perfection. It's a way of talking about consistency. So their lives don't need to display all of these things perfectly. Nobody can do that. But consistently, this needs to be who they really are, and it, it plays out and it shows up over. You can test them and see this is who they really are, and it shows up over over time. So deacons are men and women known for serving in word, desire, and deed, demonstrating real faith amidst real life over time. Any closing thoughts? <laughs> Thank you for laying all that out, Jonathan. I thought it was very helpful, and I think it will be helpful for anyone that missed the sermon and wasn't able to get that information. I think it helps explain and gives um, a lot of value to the position. Well, and we all need to know these qualifications because we as a church are supposed to be involved in the selection of deacons and deaconesses, right? Um and what, what what's interesting, and I'll close with this. It's the same way we I, I close the sermon. Um, what's interesting is when you walk through these qualifications, you could step back and say, well, all of this needs to be true about anybody who calls themselves a Christian. 
Like, they all need to serve in word, desire, and deed. They all need to demonstrate real faith. Yeah, I mean, it's real life over time. And that's true. Like, I think, uh, I think it's D.A. Carson that commenting on the qualifications for elders and deacons says, the extraordinary thing is that there's nothing extraordinary about these qualifications. They're quite ordinary. But as leaders, they're supposed to lead out in these things. They're supposed to be a model. They're supposed to set an example. So with all of that in mind, I think I'll close with this quote from Matt Smithhurst. What a last name. Crazy. Yeah, from his book on deacons. He says this. So when you just when you're thinking about who deacons are and like if I'm responsible to help in the selection of deacons, I think that this really helps sum up everything. Deacons must embody the kind of character expected of all Christians. But they should be exemplary in the ordinary. Deacons are the people in your church of whom you should be able to say, Brother, do you desire to foster unity? Sister, do you wish to grow as a servant? Watch them. Watch them. So, yeah, I'm excited to have deacons and deaconesses here at Shades. I'm excited in all of the ways that the Lord uh, is going to work through their ministries uh, just to bless bless the body. Um, I did go over a couple of practical things on Sunday, that last Sunday of kind of what this looks like uh, at Shades. I talked about a couple of structural changes we're making in order to uh, try and provide support to these deacons and deaconesses and their teams um, and to provide clear pathways of communication for the congregation. I know that our podcast has gone on for like 3 billion hours now, so I will simply tell you uh, to go and listen to the sermon, and you can hear all of that. So I was going to tell everyone who our deacons and deaconesses are. Let's do it. Even though we've been going on for long, I, I don't care. <laughs> People can turn it off if they want to turn it off. Now, you can find all this information on ShadesValley.org. And if you go to the menu and you select Serving, there's a link called Teams. And these are our serving teams. Okay. Now, I'm specifically reading the deacons and deaconesses. There are some teams that exist here at Shades Valley that might have elder leadership or pastoral leadership that's not the same as a deacon and deaconess uh, leading that team. So I'm just going to skip over those teams. But, for example, would be Benevolence. Benevolence is ran by Matt Theus or is led by Matt Theus. Right. He is an elder. Right. That is that is a team where we would totally, like, 100%. love to have a deacon or deaconess serving. Um, yes. But then, like, think about a team like like youth. Yeah. Uh, we employ Sarah to, to yes. work with you. So that's a staff position. So that's why you don't have like a deacon or deaconess in a position like that. Anyway, go ahead. Facilities team, Joe's stores. We know what the facility team does. He's up here all the time repairing things, and he's got a great team that's been working with him. Uh, finance team, Doug Abernathy. All right. Greeters. You see the greeters on Sunday mornings as you walk into the building. They're handing out bulletins. Annabeth Reese leads that team. Security team, Corey Cruz. It's a cruise. <laughs> a Caribbean cruise. I have to every time. I have to every I time I say his name. You can't two say the word. It's to paradise. Global mission, Shay Wall. Art ministry, Amy Ross. Prayer ministry is led by two people, 
but one of them is Jeff Stalkup. He's an elder. The other is Park Stalkup, his wife. She's a deaconess over the prayer ministry. Coffee team, Lizbeth Cerrone Gomez. And then we also have Mike Grant over the offering team and Becky Weldon over special connections Which- and food pantry. Joni Ford. Yes. Which Special Connections, if you don't know, uh, is a ministry aimed at helping uh, families that have people with special, uh, have kids or, or what have with special needs. It's it's a special needs ministry. Um, right. It, it uh, her team has been responsible for the design and building and installation of the sensory room that we have. Yep. And uh, some of the signs that you've seen around that just help provide families with kids that have sensory issues. It helps provide them awareness of areas that are quiet or loud or those kinds of things. Those are those are some things that team has done. And like Jonathan had mentioned earlier, there are some teams that are either currently in existence or teams that we would we would like to create that need deacons and deaconesses. I know we mentioned some of those yeah. earlier. Yeah, I think I'll close by going through those. Uh, but I mean, since we're not caring about time. I will say this really quickly. Uh, so when you go to the webpage that John Mark just mentioned, not only will you see those deacons and deaconesses uh, there and the teams that they lead, but you will see the elder that is responsible for supporting, uh, offering support to that team. So this is one of the structural changes that we've made um, that I told you to listen to the sermon for that I'm just going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is one of the structural changes we made. So an elder is in a support position with each of those teams. And 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 this is to provide that deacon uh, with a clear path of communication if they have something their ministry needs or a decision that they need made that they don't know that they're like they want to get the elders to weigh in on or anything like that. They have someone they know that they can go to. This is a way that we're making sure that our deacons and deaconesses aren't burning out and they're being cared for, all of those kinds of things. It's also to provide a clear path of communication for you as the congregation. So if if you see something, say, with the security need, you, you notice the security need, uh, you can go to the webpage and see exactly what deacon, uh, Corey Cruz, that you're to take that to. Uh, or if you think it's like, man, this is something that need, the elders need to be aware of this. It was a big thing, big serious thing or something. Uh, you can see exactly what elder you're supposed to go to. So hopefully this is making those lines of communication very clear and it's going to help things not to fall through the the cracks uh, as well. So Yeah, and if you want to see that particular information, you need to go to the staff and elders portion of the website and underneath everyone's bios at the very end, it lists which teams those elders and pastoral staff oversee. Yeah. We're trying to make the information as available as possible and accessible as possible so that it's easy to find kind of no matter where you end up on the website. So, yeah, so I guess just to kind of close up our time, we'll run really quickly through the teams that we mentioned this past Sunday that could use deacon leadership. And you can be in prayer as a member of Shades Valley as to maybe the Lord will lead you to nominate someone for one of these positions. Uh, or nominate yourself. You can do any of that by emailing elders at shadesvalley.org. So, John Mark mentioned there are some teams that are already in existence, up and running, that could definitely use deacon leadership. I will point those out. Uh, One is the decor team. So the decor team uh, is primarily responsible for the communion tables, uh, any 
decor you ever see on the communion tables, as well as decorating for the seasons, particularly uh, Lent and Advent. Um, and so a deacon or deaconess to lead up that team would be amazing. It's, it's not us asking you to be the sole person that does all the decorating. It's to, it's to lead a team. Um, the communion team. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but what whoever's standing at the back serving communion each Sunday, uh, those are the people who brought the bread, cut the bread, set it all out, got communion totally prepared, and clean up afterwards and all of that. That team is obviously up and running. It could really use some deacon leadership to participate in that, to lead out in that, to make sure it's always getting done and getting done well, and to uh, to do all the scheduling for it. Uh, that is something that right now, how, how does that team function without deacon leadership right now? How does it function, John Mark? I schedule all of the communion volunteers. So currently. a really practical illustration of a way that deacons help relieve kind of some of those practical duties off the plate of a pastor and elder so that they can focus on other things. That right there. Yeah, John Mark does it. Does a great job. But we would, love, we would love for him to employ his skills in a different direction. Um, baptism team. So that's somebody to do all the logistics uh, of when we have a baptism, to get the baptismal set up, to help serve uh, and make sure that the, the candidate has everything they need, towels and all of that kind of thing, and then to clean up afterwards. Right now that's something that basically we do. Yep. Um, or we'll find uh, maybe a, an ad hoc volunteer to, to help with. It'd be great to have a team. Um, I'll just really quickly list the other things that uh, have existed before but don't really exist right now or maybe never have existed uh, at Shades where it'd be awesome to have a leader. Um, so men's ministry, there are things that happen for men, but there's no centralized kind of men's ministry or someone leading that. Women's ministry, again, amazing things that happen. with The, the women are going on the retreat this weekend. Yep. The women's retreat this weekend. But there, there's no one kind of like, helping to head that up, making sure things don't fall through the cracks, all of that kind of thing. Uh, singles ministry, that's something we've never had uh, here at Shades. Uh, community events. What we mean by community events is there are a lot of things that the planning and the execution of which completely falls on the shoulders of the staff, which typically means uh, me, Brad, and John Mark, primarily. So these can be things like picnic in the park it can be things like uh baron's night out it mostly like think about events where we have community connection and it would be awesome to have a deacon or deaconess that wanted to really take a lot of that planning and execution on their shoulders we're not saying like we're going to throw you to the wolves and you'll be out there on your own and can't ask us any questions or or we won't help at all but man that would be incredible and free us up to to be able to focus energies in other directions and then the last one is kitchen coordination. And to be 100% honest, we're still kind of figuring out exactly what that means. <laughs> um, the general idea, I think, is this. Uh, our kitchen is utilized by various ministries right now. And there's just not really a central person directing traffic. So kind of making sure that the kitchen's not getting double booked or if say a ministry like the youth ministry is going to use it for the first time. There's not someone really making sure they know what to do, know how to clean up, know where stuff goes. Yeah. So just think basically someone to make sure that the, the kitchen stays in one piece <laughs> as different ministries use it 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost just like a, a kind of kitchen supervisor is what we're thinking. Um, but some of these things have never existed before, so it's really a kind of choose your own adventure. You have a lot of you have a lot of control in defining exactly what the position looks like. But yeah, so those are some areas that we're aware of that could really use uh, deacon leadership. Any closing thoughts from you, gentlemen? I think Brad has moved on to checking his email. He he's been like typing and stuff this whole time. I don't know yeah, what he's been he's doing. writing a sermon for Sunday. <laughs> I've been taking diligent notes on what you guys have been saying. Oh my word. And I think he's been watching a horror film. Yeah, maybe so. I think you guys have covered it. Sometimes you just need to sit and listen. That's what I've learned in uh, ministry. Well, this has been a wide-ranging episode, <laughs> and we hope that it's been helpful. Um, email in your thoughts. If you have questions, whether it's about uh, deacons and deaconesses, uh, whether it's about um, ways that we could fight against growing anxiety and loneliness in our culture and be more connected or if it's about horror films please don't need, i don't want to talk about that anymore <laughs> um we'll do a full episode soon oh my word but yeah email us midweek at shadesvalley.org brad would you like to tell them why they because here it's shades midweek you're more than part of the conversation you are the conversation